I'm going to preach to you on, on the, the gospel text and I've entitled it to him who believes. We already had the text read to us, so I won't, I won't read that. I will add a few verses a little bit later on uh, in the message. But I thought to myself as I was studying this text that it might be interesting to pass out a questionnaire to you and, and to ask you after giving you an opportunity to look through the text and read it a, a few times to give me your opinion as to what you considered to be its focal point, the main teaching of the passage. And, and, and I'm pretty sure that had I done that, I would have received several different answers. Because this is one of those texts, at least early on, seems to have several main points, several themes on which to focus. I mean, you could focus on the whole process of divine healing here and considering the miracle of Jesus. Or you could talk on the subject of demonic oppression when you think of that helpless son brought there for healing. You could think of possibility thinking. I mean, everything is possible for him who believes, right? You can, you know, get off the subject and and get yourself lost, but uh, you could make a sermon on possibility thinking. Or prayer. They ask, how could this be healed? Or how, you know, how how could this, why couldn't we heal him? And, And the answer was, because it requires prayer. And each of these themes are a part of the text. In fact, each of them, I think, is an important part. And I'm going to touch on each in my message. But I don't think that that's the chief point of the text found in, in, in this passage. In fact, I think the one thing that ties it all together is that this, this text before us is a study on faith. It's a study on the nature and the expression of faith. In this text, we see faith and faithlessness contrasted. We also see something of the relationship between faith and prayer, between faith and healing, between faith and hopefulness, and even surprisingly faith and doubting. We're going to proceed with this study on faith in order, or in the order in which it's presented and in the text, and, and considering, first of all, faithlessness, and secondly, faith. And it may surprise you who are the examples of each in this, in this text. The example of faithlessness is provided us by the disciples of Jesus. And that's, what? How, how can that be, right? How can that be? Now, I'm going to read a few verses which precede the verses that were read because it it, it sets a little context here. When they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing or why are you arguing with them? And, and someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long? Am I to bear with you? 
bring him to me. The return that's being referred to here in those first verses that I read this morning is the return of Jesus along with Peter, James, and John. If you look in the chapter just preceding, or the verses just preceding this, you'll notice that they had been to the Mount of Transfiguration. That Jesus was glorified in the presence of those three men. They saw the glory of God way that they'd never seen it before. In fact, they were so excited about it, they offered to build some booths and just stay put. And I can understand that. That might have been a, a real mountaintop experience, wouldn't it? I, I don't know that I'd have been looking to go back into the valley after that either. But when they come down, it, it's kind of interesting because Jesus meets here with, with a, a, a disappointment. And, and I thought of... I don't know, the comparison, I guess, that came to my own mind of Moses when he came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments and he saw what was going on in the camp and he was not only disappointed, he was greatly angered, wasn't he? In fact, so angry he took the stones on which the Ten Commandments had been engraved and broke them into who knows how many pieces. Now Jesus is coming down off the mountain of transfiguration and he sees what's going on and it had to be a great disappointment to him. The crowd, when they see Jesus, they're they're amazed because for them it's like, you know, it happened just in the nick of time or as my son Michael used to say when he was a little guy, just in the nick of time. The crowd was amazed because here's Jesus. And and it's interesting. It it was the fathers, or it it was the father and not the disciples who, who, or it wasn't the father, excuse me, but the disciples who had failed to exercise the demon. And it was the father then who, who provided the explanation for this argument that's in process. And it's interesting to me that only weeks before the apostles, the twelve, had been sent out on a preaching, healing mission. And do you remember when they came home or came back and talked to Jesus? How excited they were? They said, Lord, even the demons obey us in your name. And it was a, it was a perfect experience as long as they remembered The last three words are in your name. But they forgot that in this instant. And I think of Jesus' complaint here. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up? Bring the boy to me. Now, this statement, unbelieving generation, could be to the whole crowd in general even including the scribes and those who were arguing with Jesus. But I think more specifically, maybe even most specifically, Jesus here is is leveling a complaint against his own disciples. Because they have forgotten something that was so important and that's why they were unable to deal with this situation and exercise the demon. And I think that any disgust in Jesus' voice, and I believe that there was some, 
was not directed at the boy or to the father, but to the disciples, who Jesus clearly implies should have been able to successfully exercise the demon. So what did Jesus mean by faithlessness? I mean, the disciples preferred faith in Jesus, did they not? They believed that he was the Messiah. He believed, or they believed that he was the, the Savior. And I'm sure that they had no intention, no desire at all of, of bringing any shame upon the name of Jesus. But they were embarrassed because they were powerless to do anything. They were disciples. They were followers, students, learners. They loved Jesus. They didn't want to see it going in the direction that it was but they were faithless in a certain context. And I believe that the faithlessness of which they were guilty was that they hadn't relied upon Jesus. They had relied upon themselves. Again, they forgot in Jesus' name. Because that's where the power is. The faithlessness then is is self self-reliance. They thought they could just take care of it on their own. After all, they'd been successful before, right? But you know what? You stop and think about it. Reliance is idolatry. Is it not? It's idolatry. Because you're thinking you don't need God to get something done. Because you think, I'm able, I'm capable, I can do this. But they couldn't. So it's idolatry. And I think it's interesting. When they get into indoors afterwards, they immediately asked him, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said, because this kind can come out only by prayer. Now you probably heard and even written several different, different definitions for prayer. One that I really have liked over the years and and one that I think is is just so applicable and biblically based is one that's put forth by Ole Hollisby in a book entitled simply Prayer. He was a Norwegian Lutheran theologian of the early part of the previous century. He writes, and I quote, to pray is nothing more than to let Jesus into our knees. To pray is to give Jesus permission to employ his powers in our needs or to the alleviation of our distress. Finally, to pray is to let Jesus glorify his name in the midst of our needs, end quote. So prayer is the expression of faith. Prayer is faith in action. Prayer is the exact opposite of self-reliance. Because I have needs. And in prayer, I'll open myself to Jesus and ask him to meet those needs. I can't do it, Lord, but I believe you can. (laughs) And apparently this... You know, it it requires prayer. That lesson wasn't really learned immediately because if you read in the latter part of this chapter uh, where they go to Capernaum, they get into the house. Now it's Jesus asking a question. He says, what were you arguing about on the road? And they didn't answer. Why didn't they answer? 
Because they'd argued among themselves about who was the greatest. Losers. <laughs> I'd have been among them if I'd have been there. And so probably would you. Who's the greatest? How silly. How silly. And then he said to the twelve, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Oh, but it was learned, and, and, and I'm grateful about that. And I think of the Apostle Paul, where he writes in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Is that a brag? No, it's an expression of faith. The thing is, we need to look at the first four words in that statement. I can do everything. If that's all we focus on, guess what? We're in trouble. We're right back to idolatry again. But when it's tied in with the last six words in that statement, it makes all the difference. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That makes it an expression of faith. That makes it an expression of reliance upon God. Now we looked at the disciples here for the example of faithlessness. For an example of faith, by contrast, we look at the demoniac boy's father, the man who said, if you can, and I believe, but help my unbelief. We pick up the action with Jesus' interrogation of the boy's father, looking at verses 17 and 18 and verses 21 through 24. And, and this was not for Jesus' sake, so that he could, you know, learn what the problem was and and, and come up with a plan for how to treat the, treat the boy. He understood already. This was for the father's sake. It was to help and emphasize to that man that he needed divine help. And it was designed to bring faith out in the man. And it was also for the disciples' sake to show them what faith is. Teacher, I brought my son to you who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. And then Jesus makes that comment about how long has he been like this. And, and again, he didn't need to learn, but the man needed to, to learn. And the man said, from childhood. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus asks. If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Any believers here ever been in that in that boat? Raise your hands, else you're liars. We've all been in that boat. I believe, but I have doubts too. Faith isn't uh, it isn't an exact science, is it? And there's lessons for us to learn about it over and over and over again. 
In small catechism, question 212 asks, what is faith? And this is the answer. This is faith, that a repentant sinner lays hold of Christ as his only Savior from sin and death and the power of Satan, that he takes refuge with Christ in his righteousness and builds thereon with the confidence of his whole heart. So then how could the father's cry, and I think literally it was a cry, be an expression of faith? I do believe. Help my unbelief. He's beside himself. I think he's at the end of himself. I think he is racked with doubt. But ultimately, and this is what's crucial, ultimately he turns to Jesus. He looked to the Savior instead of relying on other mortal men. And friends, that's what faith is all about. This is a very important statement. I have it capitalized in my notes. Listen, please, listen. What mattered was not the extent of his faith, but the focus of his faith. Do you get that? I'll say it again. What mattered was not the extent of his faith, but the focus of his faith. It wasn't how much faith he had, but in whom that faith was focused that made the difference. And you see, faith, when it's in Jesus and him alone, is true faith. And faith enough to ask Jesus for help is faith enough? Even if you're 60% doubting and 40% believing, as long as you bring that to Jesus, as long as you focus on Him, that's the exercise of faith. That faith is a legitimate faith. And that should bring hope. Because I I know that each one of us has had doubts in our own mind. But it doesn't mean that we don't have faith. So long as we entrust our needs to Jesus, we're acting in faith. And as the man did, so can we even entrust our doubts to him. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that encouraging to us? Because I don't have it all down pat. And if you're looking to me for the answers, good luck. I have doubts too. I've asked believing with doubt in my heart at the same time. And I've struggled with that. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't hold the man's doubts against him. He dealt with them. He laid them to rest. Because faith, if it's in Jesus, if that's where our faith is focused, that's true faith. And if we have faith enough simply to ask, to express our needs, that's faith enough. That's faith enough. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, 
There's the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. There is the assurance that as believers we have access into the presence of the Father and that it's all based on the finished redemptive work of Jesus and on the hope that he who came once will come again. And later on in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, Abraham is listed as an example of faith. In verse 11 it says, By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to because a father, because he considered him faithful, who made the promise. Don't think for a moment that he didn't go back and forth with that. I believe but I doubt too. He's an old man. His wife is past childbearing age. They have this promise, they want to cling to it, and they do, and yet at the same time, it was a hard thing, and and we know there were ups and downs through that whole promise. And for each of us as, as a believer, we've had doubts too. We need to be honest about that. And what about Jesus' statement? Everything is possible for him who, who believes. Did that put the responsibility for the boy's deliverance upon the father, at least in part? I mean, is there some power in faith? Is there a power in prayer? Was Jesus guaranteeing positive results if the man's faith was pure enough or strong enough? No. Jesus' statement does not mean that your every prayer or mine is going to be answered according to our desires. If our faith is right or strong enough, pray without any doubt. If you believe that positive answers to your prayers for yourself or others is dependent upon the quality or strength of your faith, and that you will always get the answers if your faith is right, then you're responsible when those prayers aren't answered with a yes. As a young pastor, I'm going to admit something to you today. I had a hard time going into hospitals and praying for healing for people who were really sick. Because I was caught up in this. That that whole idea that somehow I have to have strong enough faith. That somehow it's dependent upon me. No. It's dependent upon him. Somehow I put myself on the hook. I wasn't on the hook. God's on the hook. Do you get that? It's God who makes the promises. He's the one on the hook. And when I came to realize that, it just gave me peace. And it freed me up to be able to pray and to just trust in the Lord. To do what was his will. And I could pray, thy will be done. Because you see, when Jesus says that everything is possible for him who believes, he's telling us that nothing is impossible for him. Therefore, we can get our eyes off ourselves and place them squarely on him. We don't need to withhold any request from him. We can even bring our doubts to him and entrust all things to him and pray, thy will be done, Lord, and trust that it will be. The miracles of Jesus weren't dependent upon the faith of mere mortals, but upon the will of God. And his answers to our prayers are likewise. I've heard it said numerous times that there's great power in prayer. 
Brothers and sisters, I don't believe that's biblical. I don't think there is any power in prayer. The power is in the one to whom we pray. And there's a huge distinction there. I have a trolling motor on the front of my boat that says it'll generate 85 pounds of thrust. That's a big motor. They should get sued for false advertising because in and of itself it doesn't do a thing. I'm going to have to replace it either this year or next. It's going to cost me about $2,500. But it has no power in and of itself. Now, I also have a, a couple of batteries. They cost $100, 125 apiece. There's where the power is. So, if I've got a couple batteries and I've got a trolling motor on my boat, am I good to go? Nope. I need one more thing. I need, a, I need about a dollar's worth of wire to connect the motor to the battery. That's prayer. You and I are the motors. God's the battery. And prayer simply connects us to him. Prayer enables us to open to him and to be open with him our needs and to trust that he, according to his will and in his time, will both hear and answer and we can trust in him. Faith is never self-reliance. That would be idolatry. We don't find an example of faith in the disciples in this text. We find it in the desperate father of a demon-oppressed boy. And we find that faith is devoid of any human merit, any human claim. Faith is really just empty hands stretched out to God for him to fill as he sees fit. Faith isn't power. Prayer isn't power. It's helplessness. It's need. Faith is self-denial. Faith is God's gracious gift to us, which enables us in turn to trust in Jesus alone for every situation in our lives. Faith is claiming him and seeking his help, even when every human instinct would tell us it's hopeless. In fact, it's even stupid to do so. Faith is not possibility thinking Faith is submitting ourselves to the will of God at the expense of our own. And yet it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful blessing because it puts us in connection with God, the one who has all the power, the one who can meet every need. And he can meet them with a wisdom that we don't have and in this life never will. I can pray 
And I can even pray for what I desire, but I need to pray, your will be done, Lord, because I don't always know exactly what I should have or exactly what I need. He does. If I'm committed to that, if you're committed to that, and even, you know, it might be a 60-40 thing one day, 60% doubt and 40% faith, as long as your faith points you to Jesus. And you ask him, it's faith enough. And we can say as John does in 1 John 5, 4, then, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And because our faith is in Jesus alone, we don't need to worry that sometimes we have doubts. In fact, I wonder if maybe we shouldn't worry if we don't. And don't worry if those doubts persist at times. Just remember where and to whom you can take them. Give them to Jesus. And trust his will to be done. My dad got cancer. After his diagnosis, about 17 to 18 months later, he died. I think I prayed every single day in that year and a half long period for dad's healing. Sometimes I prayed more than once a day. When he died, was I disappointed? No. I was sad. Because I miss my dad. Even to this day, 34 years later, I miss my dad. But he... I didn't settle for healing him for time. He healed him for eternity. Amen? He always knows what's best. And he always provides exactly what is needed. So we can take the advice of the Apostle Paul from Philippians 4, 4 through 8. Rejoice in the Lord, always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. To him who believes, everything is possible when our faith is in Jesus. Even when we don't understand everything, it's still sufficient. God help us each in that. God bless us each in that, that it would strengthen our faith and and, and take 
a load off of us to think that somehow we're responsible for something we don't have any power to do. May he work in us what pleases him. Amen. Lord, it, it, it is true. There are times when we would say, if you're able... But as long as we come to you, as long as we seek your help, then it is an exercise of faith. And we can say as the man did, I believe, help my unbelief. And to know that you can deal with that too. I'm so encouraged in this, that that nowhere in this text did did you take him to task for saying that he had some doubts. You don't do that to us either. Take the load off of us that, that would mistakenly cause us to think that we're responsible in some way, even to a small degree, for healing or help or whatever it is that we need. Help us simply to open ourselves to you meeting our need and to you accomplishing your will and to knowing that your will is good and gracious in every situation. In Jesus' name, amen.